welcome to the weekly sermon podcast at the Cowboy Church of Ellis County. You know, guys, every once in a while, somebody brings to me a sermon request or, or a thought or an idea for a sermon. In fact, some of you are so um, efficient that you just bring me a whole list at one time where maybe I can go down the checklist and answer them all for you. And I'm not always able to do that, and, and I know that you understand that. That's one of the reasons I really recommend all of you a connect group because that really is an environment where you can ask questions, and many times there will be a Christian there that's mature enough to answer those questions for you. Nevertheless, uh, from time to time I do get one that I, that I want to address, and I got one of those just last week, I think, maybe the week before. And it's a very basic question. It's so basic and fundamental I was a little bit surprised to get it. And the question is, who is God? We talk about God all the time, but, but who is he? Now, I, I was surprised, first of all, because that's a basic question. I was surprised, second of all, because I think it's only been maybe a year since I did a very long sermon series talking about the attributes of God, where we talked about all the different aspects and, and facets of God, things like his omniscience and omnipresence and omnipotence and uh, the fact that He is spiritual and holy and loving and triune, all of these fancy words that people used to talk about God, we, we talked about them here and we broke them down and talked about what they meant and, and how it applied to God. But, but I think, you know, sometimes we can break things down a little too much. It's true that you can learn a lot by looking and talking about a person's attributes. I mean, if I were to ask you to write down on a piece of paper for me some of your attributes, you would write some things down about who you are and how you are. You might talk about your physical attributes. You might say, well, I'm six foot one or I'm five foot seven. You might talk about the color of your eyes or the color of your hair. You might tell, tell me how old you are. You might put something on that list about your personality. You might say, well, I'm an optimistic person or I'm a pessimistic person or I'm an extroverted person or I'm an introverted person. You, you would put all of these things down on a piece of paper and, and give it to me. Do you think that if I took that piece of paper that had all your attributes written down on it and I gave it to someone, they would really have a concept of who you are? Not necessarily. Certainly they would have some information about you, and they might have some things that they would look for in you, but they wouldn't really know who you were. For, for someone to really know you, even on a superficial level, it, it almost requires them introducing the, themselves to you. I had a friend quite a few years ago, he's been with the Lord quite a while now. His name was Jack Patterson, and, and I used to talk about him with some frequency, he made a big impact on my life. And Jack was one of those men from the greatest generation. He was a World War II vet, fought in the Battle of the Bulge. He was a farmer, started out as a Georgia dirt farmer, and then went up in the panhandle of Texas and became kind of a big farmer. Very charismatic guy. I described him many, many times as being the most charismatic man that I had ever met. Had an infectious smile, a high-pitched, twiny Georgia drawl, which is very hard to replicate. He could pray like a saint and bring heaven down, and he could turn around and fight like a bear if he needed to. Those are his attributes. 
And I could talk about all of those attributes, but it's really hard to get. But, you know, I actually invited him to our church to give a testimony. And, and I mean, within three minutes, I could tell that people got what I was talking about because it it, it was instantly understandable when he began to be up here and talk about himself. And so I think what happens to us sometimes is we, we talk about God according to His attributes, and we chop Him up in all of these pieces, and I, and I give those pieces to you to help you understand Him. Yet in the very exercise of doing that, sometimes that causes us to miss the whole. It causes us to kind of miss the short, sweet, simple idea and definition of, of who God is. But if God could be here this morning... And if he could stand here before you and introduce himself to you, A of all, a lot of you wouldn't want to be here. <laughs> be like the people around the mountain were back in Moses' day. They said, Lord, Moses, you speak to us because if God speaks to us, we'll surely die. But truly, if God could introduce himself, I think we would get it a lot better than we do just talking about him. Now, obviously, he can't be here this morning. I hope he's here in spirit, but he can't be here or will not be here in his physical presence or his spiritual presence. But I do think that we can open our Bible and we can learn something about God because God does, in fact, introduce himself to someone in his own words. And I think by letting God speak about himself in his own words, it may be more valuable to us than me speaking to God uh, uh, or to you about God using theological words. So let's go to Exodus chapter 33. Exodus chapter 33, beginning at verse 12. We're going to skip around just a little bit in the interest of time, but I want you to get the context of this. You know, God has already appeared to Moses in the burning bush. He's already called Moses. He's already walked with Moses for a season. And yet, it seems as though uh, he has held something back. That, that Moses doesn't feel like he yet understands or has comprehension of who God is exactly. And so, if you're with me in Exodus chapter 33, beginning verse 12. It says, One day Moses said to the Lord, You have been telling me, take these people up to the promised land. But you haven't told me whom you will send with me. You have told me I know you by name and I look favorably on you. Well, if it's true that you look favorably on me, let me know your way so that I may understand you more fully and continue to enjoy your favor. And remember that this nation is your very own people. And the Lord replied, I will personally go with you, Moses, and I will give you rest. Everything will be fine for you. And then Moses said, if you don't personally go with us, don't make us leave this place. How will anyone know that you look favorably on me, on me and on your people, if you don't go with us? For your presence among us sets your people and me apart from all other people on the earth. And the Lord replied to Moses, I will indeed do what you ask, for I will look favorably on you, and, and I know you by name. And then Moses responded, verse 18, Then show me your glorious presence. And the Lord replied, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will call out my name, Yahweh, before you. For I will show mercy to anyone I choose and I will show compassion to anyone I choose. But you may not look directly at my face for no one may see me and live. The Lord continued, look, stand near me on this rock and as my glorious presence passes by, I will hide you in the crevice of the rock and cover you with my hand until I pass by. 
Then I will remove my hand and let you see me from my from behind, but my face will not be seen. Now, if you will, skip down to verse 5 of chapter 34. Just a few paragraphs. Exodus chapter 34, verse 5. Then the Lord came down in a cloud, and he stood there with him, Moses. And he called out in his own name, Yahweh. And the Lord passed in front of Moses, calling out, Yahweh, the Lord, or your version may say, the Lord, the Lord, the God of compassion and mercy. I am slow to anger and filled with unfailing love and faithfulness. I lavish unfailing love to a thousand generations. I forgive iniquity, rebellion, and sin, but I do not excuse the guilty. I lay the sins of the parents upon their children and grandchildren. The entire family is affected, even the children in the third and fourth generations. And I will stop right there. What we have here is not so, God, so much God introducing himself to Moses as he is revealing himself to Moses. Moses is saying to God, God, I really want to know who you are at a deep level. I mean, I know you're God, but I want to know, I want to know your heartbeat. I want to know you, God. I want to know your way. So, so reveal yourself to me. And, and so the Lord says, okay, I'll do that. And so he, he has this encounter with Moses where Moses is hidden in the crevice of the rock and the Lord passes by. And he cries out, the Lord, the Lord, the God of compassion and mercy. Let's take this a little bit at a time. What is compassion? You know what compassion is? It's actually a compound word, calm meaning with and passion talking about feeling. It is with feeling. God is a God that carries with him deep feeling. The dictionary says that compassion is a feeling of deep sympathy and sorrow for another who is stricken by misfortune, accompanied by a strong desire to alleviate the suffering. So, so compassion sees someone who is in a fix. Compassion sees someone who is in trouble, but it doesn't just see them, it feels for them. And it feels for them at such a heart level that it, that it desires to respond and do something to alleviate the misery. And God says, I am the God of compassion. Not I am a God of compassion. I am the God of compassion. I am all about feeling. There is no pain... In this world that doesn't break God's heart. There is no human need in this world that God does not see and wish that he could help. He is the God of compassion. When a child is abused, God feels that. Whenever somebody dies alone and on the street as one of our family friends did from acute alcoholism, God sees that. And he feels that. And it tears his heart out. When he sees someone who is so addicted that they are completely unable to turn their life around or escape the gravity of their addiction, God's heart hurts for that. When someone is mentally ill and they have no means of supporting themselves and they have to live on the street, God feels that. He is the God of compassion. That's what he says. And not only is he the God of compassion, but he is the God of mercy. Mercy is the active part of compassion. See, compassion sees something and it feels for it and it wants to do something about it. But, but mercy acts 
And if you want a picture of what mercy is all about, all you have to do is, is look at the parable of the Good Samaritan. And we're not going to turn there this morning because I'm really concerned about time. But, but uh, Luke chapter 10, verse 25 is where it's found. If you want to mark that down, Luke chapter 10, verse 25. I think most of us know the story. That's the reason we're not going there. Parable of Good Samaritan. It's the story of a man who's traveling from Jerusalem down to Jericho. Now, I didn't have any clue what that really meant until we went to Israel a while back, but you could see it very vividly. It's downhill all the way. And you're winding through a part of the country that looks like the Badlands up in South Dakota. Or if you've never been there, just watch any of the old Clint Eastwood B-grade movies and you'll see. It's just a rugged desert, very hilly place with a lot of curves and a lot of hidden places. It looks like a place where a robber would be. And in fact, that's exactly where they would hang out. And, and as people would wind their way from Jerusalem to Jericho, the robbers would spring on them and take whatever they had. And that's exactly what happened to this man. He was traveling through that desolate area, and, and a group of bandits sat down on him, and they stripped him, the Bible says. They beat him, and they left him there half dead. It was a very common thing. We, we read the stripped part and I don't think we quite comprehend why or what that means. It was very common. Clothes were a valuable article in that day. They weren't common and easy to come by as they are now. So if you, could, if you acquired a robe, that was money. That was value. And so literally they took the clothes off of this man, not, not so much out of a, a sense of just being bad people, which I'm sure they were, but, but it was It was valuable. And they took everything he had of value, they beat the tar out of him, they left him in the ditch half dead, and, and so people begin walking by. And, and one of the people that comes walking by happens to be a priest. We don't know where he's going, the Bible doesn't tell us, but he, it does say that he saw the man, and literally he crossed over to the other side of the path and, and made a wide berth around this man. So also a Levite, who was a servant in the temple, the Levite saw the man, he did the same exact thing. He saw him, and he walked to the other side of the road, he made a wide berth around him, and then finally, a Samaritan comes along. That's why it's called the parable of the Good Samaritan. Samaritan were considered half-breeds, they were hated uh, by the Israelites in the main. But the Samaritan, as he walks upon this man laying in the ditch, he has compassion. His heart, he says, oh my gosh, look at this guy. If somebody doesn't help this guy, he's going to die. I mean, that's what goes through his mind. And so he stops and he, he begins to render aid to this man. And he, he gets him doctored up well enough to put him on his donkey. And he carries him to an inn and he pays the innkeeper to take care of him. See, he didn't just feel it, but he did something about it. He didn't just have compassion, but he took mercy. As a matter of fact, Jesus, when he was telling this parable, he said, which one of these was the good neighbor to this man? And, and they answered the one who had mercy on him. And so this really is a picture of what compassion and mercy looks like. It sees somebody who is hurting, it wants to respond, and in fact, it does respond. And I'll say something else about mercy. Mercy acts without regard to whether the person involved deserves it or not. This man, when he walked up on this dude that was beaten and in the ditch, he didn't know who that guy was. He didn't know what that guy was up to. He didn't know how that guy got beat up necessarily. 
I mean, to put it in modern terms, he had no way of knowing that that wasn't just a drug deal that went bad right there. And this guy deserved everything he had and was late. None of that occurred to him. He just, see, he just saw that there was a human being in trouble and he had compassion and he said, I'm going to act and do something for this guy without regard for who he is or how he got in trouble. Jesus was the same way, wasn't he? I mean, whenever people came up to Jesus, he didn't have a screening process for them to go through. He, he didn't go through a, a laundry list and check to make sure that they were clean and they had their lives in order before he ministered to them. He just saw their need and he would reach out and touch them and heal them. That's compassion and mercy. We have a ministry right here in our church. And I don't know if you're aware of it or not. It's called Crisis Relief Ministries. Larry Hunt leads that. Ray used to lead it. And, and basically, they are called upon as chaplains to go to a person's house when there has been some kind of bad thing happen. It could be that there was a murder in the household. It could be that the house burned down. Uh, it, it could be any number of things. And whenever they go to these homes to minister to people, they, they don't ask, well, is this person a Christian? Because if they're not a Christian, I don't know if I want to go. They don't ask whether the person has their life in order or not. They go out of a sense of compassion and mercy and just love the people and talk to them and give them a glass of cold water in Jesus' name or maybe a teddy bear if that will help. They do something to try to make it a little better despite the misery that the person is in. That's what compassion and mercy do. They don't ask a lot of questions. They just see and they respond. And God says, I am the God of compassion and mercy. That's how he introduces himself. I'm not telling you that. God said that. This is who I am. I'm the God of compassion and mercy. Now, I'll tell you what he didn't say so you won't be mixed up. God didn't say that I am the God who fixes everything. <laughs> oh, that he were. But somehow or another, this world is very broken, isn't it? And it's all of our faults. Of course, it started with Adam and Eve whenever they disobeyed God. That's what brought sin into this world. But as long as there is sin and free will in this world, then, then there's going to be things that, that happen that you really can't undo. I don't know all of the reasoning behind that and why things are that way. I do know this. I think if God acted prematurely, there would be a lot of people swept away. And I think even the, the fact that God allows things to continue to go on is an act of, of compassion and mercy in many ways. But what I am telling you is that God's mercy and compassion look different than what we as human beings sometimes might expect it to look like. Because sometimes when we think of compassion and mercy, we're thinking, well, somebody's going to come fix the problem. So if there is a child who is in a situation being molested, we say, well, God is merciful and he's compassionate and he's omnipotent, which means he can do anything. So clearly he ought to get the child out of there. It's not that simple. It's not that simple. But I will tell you this, when something like that is going on, God does feel it. Oh, he feels it. And he cares. And his heart is broken just as bad as ours. 
And to the degree that we get angry, I'm sure that there is a sense of anger and injustice even in him. But he does see it. And he does care. And I would go a step further and say to you that he also responds. And and the way that he responds is that he loves them and he pursues them and he holds on to them. And he doesn't let go throughout their life until he can pull them to that place where they can find healing in their life. I had a family call me several years ago. They had a homeless person who was a part of their family. And the gentleman called me and he told me, he said, this, this gentleman is dying. And he said he's really had a bad life. He hasn't really done anything right. He's lived on the streets for a long time, been in and out of different, different facilities and different people's houses, every kind of thing like that, bounced from place to place. He said, as far as I know, I don't know that he knows the Lord. I can't, you know, I don't know. But, but can you go talk to him? <laughs> I don't know people think that uh, sometimes we pastors can do wonders that no one else can do. And truthfully, we can't. But will you go talk to him? And I said, yeah, I'll go talk to him. And so I went up to his hospital room and he was there. There was actually a, a woman friend of his there that, that was, you could tell, they were both street people. It was very self-evident. They were street people, and they were, they were in the, the, the room, and I began to, to talk to this gentleman. And as I talked to him, I'm going to tell you that, that a presence of the holy filled that room in a way that I have rarely, if ever, experienced before. And it became very clear to me that while this man had a lot of things wrong in his life, his life was a train wreck. Probably some mental illness there, probably some drug abuse there. His life was a train wreck, but it became very, very evident to me that God was still holding on to him, and he was still holding on to God. And so I left that room knowing that that even though we might not be able to tell it from our perspective, that this man had been touched by God's grace. God says, I am a God of compassion and I am a God of mercy who heals the brokenhearted and the hurting. That's what he does. That's who he is. That's not according to me. That's according to him. That's how he chose to introduce himself. When Moses said, I want to know who you really are, God says, okay, Moses, this is it. This is who I really am. Now, that's not the idea that we always have about God. I know that. And and God is multifaceted. And sometimes we, we think and sometimes we even emphasize that, that God is a God who is just biding his time, you know. He's just waiting for that time when he can pour out his wrath and give everybody what they deserve. And there is an element of truth in that. Please don't misunderstand me, there is. But that's not his heart. God doesn't take any pleasure. In fact, I really wanted to do Ezekiel 18. You write that down, right? It's not in your notes. Ezekiel 18. I wanted to do Ezekiel 18 really bad this morning, and there's just not enough room and not enough time. But in that passage, God asked, Do I take any pleasure in the death of the wicked? No, I do not. So much would He rather that the wicked turn and, and, and come to Him for mercy. That's not who He is. If you're still with me in Exodus chapter 34, let's look at this again. Exodus 34, 6, the Lord passed in front of Moses calling out, The Lord, the Lord, the God of compassion and mercy. Here's what else he says about himself. He says, I am slow to anger. 
I am filled with unfailing love and faithfulness. And I lavish unfailing love to a thousand generations. I forgive iniquity, rebellion, and sin. Let's stop right there. God's telling us right here. He's, he's not just sitting up on a cloud somewhere waiting to zap the world. That's not his heart. He said, I'm slow to anger. I'm slow to anger. I don't desire to, to pour out my wrath. That, that's not my heart. I desire everybody to come to me for healing and mercy. I, I lavish unfailing love to a thousand generations. He says, I am a God of unfailing love and faithfulness. I forgive iniquity, rebellion, and sin. That's who I am. That's what I do. I forgive. I am patient. I am faithful. And I forgive. That's how he introduced himself. What does that kind of love look like? What does unfailing love that always hopes and always perseveres and always forgives, what does it look like? I want you to hold your place here in Exodus in case you need it. I want you to travel with me back into the New Testament, the book of 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 13. This is sometimes called the love chapter of the Bible. 1 Corinthians chapter 13 We're not going to read all of it. We're just going to read the most relevant passage. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 4. What does this unfailing love that God ascribes to himself, what does it look like? God says, love is patient and kind. Love is not jealous or boastful or proud or rude. It does not demand its own way. It is not irritable, and it keeps no record of being wrong. It does not rejoice about injustice, but rejoices whenever the truth wins out. Love never gives up. It never loses faith. It is always hopeful and endures through every circumstance. That's not my favorite language for this passage, but nevertheless, it gets the idea across. Love is, is always patient. It's always believing the best. It's always waiting for the individual to turn that corner and come around. It just knows it's going to happen. And the best illustration that I can use for this, even though I'm not sure it's a necessarily a biblical one, but the best parallel I can make is a mother's love. A mother's love. A lot of moms here this morning. You know, a funny thing about a mother, she can have... a Dirty, no account, no good scoundrel for a kid. Some do. I mean, face it, some do. And the kid can be strung out on meth. He can, he can be in and out of jail for bumping over quickie marts. He can get in trouble for actually maybe going out here and shooting somebody over a, over a drug buy that's gone bad. He can do all kinds of bad stuff, maybe even be serving out a term for murder in, in Huntsville. And deep down inside the mama's heart, what does she say? He's still a good kid. He's still a good kid. And if the circumstances would just turn right, I know that he would be a different person than he is. That's a mother's love. And that's the love that's being described here in 1 Corinthians 13. And God says, I am the God of unfailing love and faithfulness. 
I always believe the best. I always hope for the best. I always want the best. That's the way God's describing himself. And frankly, if we stopped right here, we would have the wrong idea, though. Because sometimes, whenever we look at a parent, mother or father, who is that way towards their children, what do we say? We say, well, they're a pushover, right? They're a pushover. And I think the mistake sometimes we've made in the church, and that's one of the reasons why my preaching has been edgy for two or three years now, is I think sometimes we make the mistake of putting God out there like he's a pushover. He is a God of compassion and mercy, no doubt about that. That's how he introduces himself. He is a God of unfailing love. He is a God of forgiveness. That's what God does. However, if you go back to the book of Exodus chapter 34, let's see how he rounds that passage out, how he finishes it up. Exodus chapter 34, verse 7. He says, I lavish unfailing love to a thousand generations. I forgive inequity, rebellion, and sin, but... I do not excuse the guilty. I lay the sins of the parents upon their children and grandchildren. The entire family is affected, even children in the third and fourth generations. That's a tough passage there. That's one we struggle with. Just because God is a God of compassion and mercy does not mean that He winks at sin because He doesn't. As a matter of fact, He gives sin a very particular kind of bite. And the kind of bite that he has given sin is this, that if you live in it and you embrace it, then that sin will not stay contained within you. That sin that you have embraced will make ripples across the water and it will begin to infect. It's contagious. It will begin to infect everyone around you. If it doesn't infect them, it will certainly affect them. And it will especially affect your children. What that means is that any time that we choose to, to delve into sin, that it's going to make a big mess for a long time. It's very easy to see this when we talk about the sexual revolution for a minute. Okay, Up until 1963, 64-ish, right? Anytime a man and a woman got together, there was a very high probability that there was going to be a conception. And so people were very careful about their sexuality. And the Bible counseled people to be careful about their sexuality. It still does. It hasn't changed. Word of God hasn't changed. It basically holds that sex, sex is something sacred that's to be saved for marriage. But in 1963, thereabouts, the birth control pill became available, the pill. And, and so people began to take the pill, and it did something that had never happened before in history, and that is that it, it separated the sexual act from the, from the uh, result of procreation. And, and so a lot of people got to thinking, well, this is pretty good. Because basically, I can go out and I can have sexual relations with someone and I don't have to worry about making a mess. Everything will be okay because I've got the pill. So we can just enjoy our life and everything will be fine. So they swept the old values of God aside and they embraced the new values of the sexual revolution. And they said it's not going to hurt anyone because it's just me and this other person. And there's not going to be any results because there's the pill. But in fact, it didn't work out that way. 
In fact, there still remains a pretty significant number of those encounters that do result in pregnancy and do result in in procreation. And so we've had a lot of children who have been aborted. We've had a lot of children who've been born out of wedlock. And, And once that happens, what typically takes place is the father disappears. Now, the father either disappears because he doesn't want the responsibility or the mother says, you know what, that father's such a jerk, I don't want him to have nothing to do with my kids, and so I'm getting myself and my baby as far away from that dude as I can. That's the way it happens. And, And so the result is that we now have, I don't know, 40, 50 years of a whole lot of children who have grown up without fathers. And the result of that, and these are very recent numbers, the result of that, 63% of youth suicides are from fatherless homes. 90% of runaways are from fatherless homes. 85% of kids who are being treated for behavioral issues are from fatherless homes. 71% of high school dropouts are from fatherless homes. 85% of the youth that are in prison today are from fatherless homes. So that harmless little act that the pill was going to save us from and we were just going to do it and everything was going to be fine, it hasn't been so harmless after all. There has been a whole generation, in fact there have now been several generations that's been absolutely decimated by it. And, and this has come about because God has put a very high premium on sin. In God's economy, sin is, is such that it is going to be painful when we engage in it. And brothers and sisters, what's more painful than us watching our sin affect our children? What, what's more painful than that? And, and so God puts a high price tag on it, but He doesn't put a high price tag on it because of any kind of hardness on his behalf. It is an act of compassion and mercy because he knows that if there wasn't a high price tag on sin, we would continue to embrace those very things that destroy us. And so, God has made these things the way he has, not because he wants anyone to suffer, but because he wants us to push those things that destroy us away from ourselves and cry out to him for mercy. And when we cry out to Him for mercy, when we see what a muck we've messed of everything, mess we've made of everything, and we cry out to God, then, then He is there to pour out His compassion and mercy upon us. That's ultimately what He wants to do in every life. He wants us to see whether our mess was a little mess or a big mess. And frankly, we don't even appreciate half the messes we even make. Whatever the size mess is, at some point, he wants that to come into focus so that we can get on our knees and say, Oh my God, I have really blown it. And he can say, I am the God of mercy and compassion. I forgive. I forgive. That's where he wants to get us to. The problem that he has is that so many times we just don't really think that we need that mercy and compassion. Or we don't need it in a very serious way. I want us to look at one more passage, and then I'll have to close. I want us to go to Matthew chapter 18, verse 23. Matthew chapter 18, verse 23. This is the parable of the unforgiving debtor. 
Matthew 18, 23. Jesus is speaking. He says, Therefore the kingdom of heaven can be compared to a king who decided to bring his accounts up to date with servants who had borrowed money from him. And in the process, one of his debtors was brought in who owed him millions of dollars. He couldn't pay, so his master ordered that he be sold along with his wife, his children, and everything he owned to pay the debt. But the man fell before his master and begged him, Please be patient with me and I will pay it all. Then his master was filled with what? Pity. And he released him and forgave his debt. You're seeing mercy and compassion there. Verse 28. But when the man left the king, he went to a fellow servant who owed him a few thousand dollars. And he grabbed him by the throat and he demanded instant payment. And his servant fell down before him and begged for a little more time. Be patient with me and I will pay it, he pleaded. But his creditor wouldn't wait. He had the man arrested and put in prison until the debt could be paid in full. When some of the other servants saw this, they were very upset. And they went to the king and told him everything that had happened. Then the king called in the man he had forgiven and said, You evil servant, I forgave you that tremendous debt because you pleaded with me. Shouldn't you have mercy on your fellow servant just as I had mercy on you? And then the angry king sent the man to prison to be tortured until he had paid his entire debt. That's what my heavenly father will do to you if you refuse to forgive your brothers and sisters from your heart. Now, when we read this passage, normally what we see, and it is true, we see a man who is being... Um, called out by God because he has not extended the same mercy to someone that he himself has received. And that's, that's a very appropriate lesson to draw from this. But there is another lesson here, I think, to be seen. This man, after being forgiven, he couldn't pay the millions of dollars. He, he didn't have it. He couldn't pay it. His family was going to be sold. He pled for mercy. The king gave him mercy. And, and the thing that he did is he went immediately out and he found someone who owed him money, kind of grabbed him by the throat, shook him down and said, pay me what you owe me. What was going on here is that this man didn't think the problem that he had with the king was his fault. This is not my problem, he said. The reason I couldn't pay the king is because I have people out there that's not paying me. So if I go out there and I take charge of my situation and I lay hands on the people who didn't pay me, I'll shake them down, I'll get my money, then I'll go pay the king and everything will be settled between me and the king. He really thought that none of this was his fault. And he also thought that he could take care of it out of his own resources. i got to tell you something. A lot of people, I believe, are on that very same wavelength. There are a lot of people who think that way. They, they believe that if they have a problem with God, they can structure their life in such a way that they can, they can smooth it over. They can balance the scales. Yes, there's been some bad stuff on the scale, but they'll put some good stuff on the scale and, and everything between them and God will be all right. But I want to tell you something. There's some things that only mercy can take care of. There are some things that only mercy can take care of. Quite a few years ago, I had a, a lady who was a secretary for me. She was an underqualified secretary. She had a lot of problems in her life. She was doing this part-time secretarial 
gig for me and she was doing some cleaning or something or another she had another part-time job she was doing everything she knew how to do she didn't have a lot of education a lot of training and and she was probably she was divorced recently divorced and she was probably stringing life together on about you know twenty five hundred three thousand dollars a month something like that doing everything she knew to do well she came to me one day and she said, brother, I have a problem. I said, well, what is it? Let's talk about it. She said, you know, I, uh, when my daughter got married, I put it all on this credit card. And she said, I didn't charge that much at the time, but now this credit card bill is up to $26,000. Now, the credit card, as it turns out, was drawing about 27 or 28% interest, okay? I don't know how much she initially put on there, but now it's $26,000. So I pull my little calculator. I know her situation. I know she's living pretty well hand to mouth. She wants me to help her structure her budget where she can pay it. And, and I sit there and do some thinking and calculations, and I say to her, I say, you are never going to pay this. You can't. It's never going to happen unless you've got some assets to sell or something. You're not going to get ahead of this. It's not going to happen. I mean, the amount she was going to have to pay to even stay even with it was about $650 a month. That's just to keep it from growing, much less paying it down. I said, you are either going to have to go to your creditor and you're going to have to ask them to forgive part of this debt or you're going to have to, to take a personal bankruptcy because you're never going to be able to overcome this. The only option that she had was someone else's mercy. And I'm here to tell you, brothers and sisters, the reality of our situation is the only option that we truly have in our life and our relationship with God is His mercy. Because we all owe debts that we can never pay Him. And, and the reason I say that is because we owe a lot of debts to God that we don't even appreciate that we owe. There is sin in our life that we don't even think is sin. We actually think that it's one of our better qualities. But God sees it and He knows it and it's there and, and, and the debt had to be paid. Jesus is the one who paid that debt for us and we thank God for that. But Romans 3.23 says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. I think what got me thinking about this this week was I heard a, a song uh, as I was traveling. I've never heard it before. It's, very, it's off the radar kind of a song. It's called Mercy Now. And this woman sings about her father and all of her father's failures. And she says, my father could use a little mercy now. Then she sings about her brother and all of his failures. And she says, you know, my brother, he could, he could use a little mercy now. And then she, she, she sings this that really made my ears perk up. She said, my church and my country could use a little mercy now. As they sink into a poison pit, it's going to take forever to climb out. They carry the weight of the faithful who follow them down. I love my church and country. They could use some mercy now. My goodness, is that not where we are as a people? Have you ever seen such a wreck as we're in? Do you see where it's all going to end? Because I don't. I don't understand what could possibly fix this. But it is in that very situation that God does His best. 
Over in the book of 2 Chronicles, a very famous passage of Scripture, God speaks to the Jews and He says, If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and forgive their sin and heal their land. When my people come to the end of themselves and they cry out for me, I, the God of compassion and mercy, will hear from heaven and heal their land. I think that is as true for an individual as it is for a nation. Anyone who sees that their situation is hopeless and they cry out to God for mercy is going to find it. Because that is who God says that he is. There may be some of you here this morning who have something in your background or maybe even something in the present tense that's going on in your life and you feel like you are so far beyond it, so far past anyone's ability to be able to help, much less your own. I'm telling you, God's got you right where He wants you. Because it is at our most broken moments that we hit our knees and we know that there's nothing that we can do for ourselves and we cry out to God, that's where God shines the most. He is the God of compassion and mercy. He can forgive. He can heal. He can't always undo the consequences in this broken world. But He most assuredly can give us peace and rest in our hearts. And that's what we need above all things. Let's go to the Lord in a word of prayer this morning. Heavenly Father, we come to you today in Jesus' name. We praise you and thank you, Father God, because you put all things together just as you would have them to be. I thank you, Lord, that as we are preparing for the Lord's Supper this morning, a a time of reflecting on our own lives, remembering our own sin and reminding ourselves what Jesus Christ did on the cross for our sin. Lord, what a perfect time For us to just bring whatever is broken in our hearts to you. And to cry out for mercy. Make this a special time this morning, Father God. Reach out there and pull some of the fallen out of their ditch. And help them, Father God, to find your peace and your love and your joy. Despite whatever's going on in their life. For I lift it to you in Jesus' name and for his name's sake. Amen. For this sermon and many more, check out our website at www.cowboyfaith.org.